Welcome to the panel discussion, Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing in Government, sponsored by Anomaly. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guests today are Melinda Rogers, the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Justice Department, Colonel Paul Kraft, the Director of Operations for Joint Force Headquarters, Department of Defense Information Networks, Brian Murphy, the Principal Deputy Undersecretary in the Office of Intelligence and, and Analysis at the Homeland Security Department, Scott Algier, the Executive Director of the Information Technology Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and Trish Cagliostro, Director of Federal Solution Architects for Anomaly. Welcome to the discussion today. It's great to have everyone here. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion. The government doesn't have a monopoly on threat intelligence in this space. That's what Tanya, Tanya Ugaritz, the director of the Cyber Threat Intelligence Center, said quite profoundly back in April. By no means should that comment shock anyone who pays attention to the constant and ever-changing threat to public and private systems, networks, and data. But what Ms. Ugaritz's comments do hit the nail on the head when it comes to that constant push and pull between government and industry to share what they know, when they know it, and how to fix it in a trusted and secure way. Over the years, we've seen a lot of pilot programs and attempts to ensure this, that there is no monopoly. From the DHS Automated Information Sharing Program to the Defense Department DibNet-S, which is a classified network for defense contractors to receive intelligence on threats on their companies. And just recently, DHS announced the launch of the National Risk Management Center to help break down some of those other communication barriers that exist between government and the private sector when it comes to sharing cybersecurity threats. So with so many of these approaches, how can agencies and industry finally break free from the culture and technical challenges? And what is the carrot or the killer app in all of this? Well, that's where our panelists are going to come in and tell us, hopefully. Once again, my guests are Melinda Rogers, the Deputy CIO at Justice Department, Colonel Paul Kraft, the Director of Operations for Joint Force Headquarters, Department of Defense Information Networks, Brian Murphy, the Principal Deputy Undersecretary in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at the Homeland Security Department, Scott Algier, the Executive Director of the IT Information Technology Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and Trish Cagliostro, the Director of Federal Solution Architects for Anomaly. So let me start with Melinda. You, you, at the Justice Department, you recently got a promotion, so congratulations from CISO to Deputy CIO. So not only do you have to worry about cybersecurity, you have to worry about a whole bunch of other fun That's things. Right. So let's maybe start with you and just talk a little bit about threat intelligence and, and how is the Justice Department kind of using it and using it to improve your cyber posture? Um, absolutely, Jason. I think with uh, cyber threat intelligence, we at this point take any and all information. They range from general indicators to actor-specific threat reports. The general indicators help us help our users identify or avoid, I should say, malicious websites and or domains to visit, whereas the um, insight that we glean from the techniques, uh, tactics, and procedures of the threat actors of those advanced persistent groups allow us to channel our efforts on the potential attack vectors and focus our work efforts to defend against that. And from a sharing perspective, you're getting data that's internal, FBI provides you, DHS provides you, the military, the IC. Any and all, we try to get as plugged in as possible, and we also use um, information that we get from private industry. Some of the key vendors that we use, they have an information sharing program where we share with them attacks or uh, uh, penetrations that we've seen within the department, and they in turn share with us what they've seen elsewhere as well. So another information sharing program we probably should uh, could have listed in my list. Uh, Colonel Kraft, you guys over at the, the JFH Doden, right? Did I get that right? Yes. It's one of those acronyms you got to rolls right off your tongue. Maybe talk a little bit. You guys have a, have a different perspective around because you're really your job in many ways is really looking at that network from a broader, much different than maybe what Melinda sure. is looking at. Y yes, Jason. So, uh, first off, Joint Force Headquarters Doden is the newest organization within Cyber Command. Uh, we've reached full operational capability in January of this year. Our task and purpose is to provide the cybersecurity network operations and active defense for all DOD networks. The means by which we do that from an Intel uh, perspective is uh, very similar to what uh, Melinda was talking about was we do certainly take in the commercial threat intelligence that's very important to us plus our vendors and our partners. We do have uh, certainly a, a, an advantage within the Department of Defense in that we also have access to the intelligence community's uh, information and we also ingest that government threat intelligence and we fuse those two uh, together uh, to be able to provide a, much, uh, a richer perspective of what is going on within the Department of Defense. We also are able to then share that across with uh, DHS and other partners that we have uh, so we can provide those indicators of compromise and any uh, you know, malicious domains or any other activities that we do have. Um, and we do that uh, each and every day uh, through a sharing program that we have. So it's vital, vital to the importance uh, for the defense of the DOD's network, but also very much enables uh, 
the defense of the nation by the information that we have. And a, a, a big way that we do that is we were able to take the DOD's network, which is about a 20, $24 billion network, and flip it and make it a $24 billion sensor grid. And we're taking all that sensor data, ingesting it along with the commercial threat intel and the government threat intel, and then fusing that together. And that's really the cyber picture that we're using that we want to be able to share that across the whole of government. And at one point, the the sharing of data with, let's say, DHS, or the sharing of data more broadly, is, is, is I'll call it new. Maybe I'll put that in air quotes a little bit. Sure. It's been a kind of a, an ongoing process. Um, because of this new organization that kind of stood up, as you said, just in January, was that one of your kind of charges? Hey, make this information sharing, the threat intelligence piece, a central theme to what you're doing, outside of just the DOD space, which... Well, you know, I'll say cybersecurity in general as a team sport. <laughs> so yes, uh, yes. I think that's uh, a drinking game we're playing. It by is. The way. It is. So, <laughs> but the the point is, yes, we have data. We want to make sure that we're able to 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 share that data. And partnerships is one of General Noxony's and our main lines of effort that we've got to get after because this is a team sport, and we want to make sure that everyone is successful within this cyber domain. Excellent. Uh, Brian Murphy from DHS, you are in the part of DHS that maybe a lot of people don't consider the cyber, the MPPD world is not your world right now, but information analysis sector, the, the, the directorate there, talk maybe about what you guys do with the cyber threat and how you fit into this um, uh, discussion. So virtually ditto to what the Colonel said. Uh, slightly different, we're a member of the intelligence community, but really along the same lines that he described. <clears throat> My whole reason for being there is to support both the DHS enterprise such as MPPD that you talked about so that they get the translation between um, compartmentalized classified data and information back to the, the non-intelligence community related aspect for a sensor perspective and then to work with all these private sector partners here through the ISACs and other partnerships in the uh, private sector world to look for opportunities to declassify information if it's possible, to make information that wouldn't readily be available to the private sector out there and vice versa, and then act as a conduit from the private sector, take their information, which is extremely valuable to the, the government side of the house, and upload it into the cloud, the iSight cloud, so that we have that data in a responsible way, respecting the privacy of um, the citizens of the U.S., companies, et cetera. And a uh, you know, very complicated task, but it is yielding fruit uh, consistently. And just a couple of numbers, just to give you a, a, a trend line, if you would. In FY17, there were about 60 products that we took from the interagency, working with our partners, either self-developed, and we send those out to our private sector uh, partnerships through the ISACs and, and other venues. About 10,000 customers that we cater to on the civilian side of things. And this year we're already at 87, and these are uh, a new trend line that we know will just continue. And it's a great partnership with all of these folks here. And let me put a finer point on When you say products, you mean a tool, a piece of software, a piece of hardware, or a product as in like, hey, here's a problem. So thank you for the <laughs> clarification question. Yeah, so what I mean by that is an intelligence assessment um, about a piece of malicious code, where it comes from, whether it's a state-sponsored, or a criminal activity related, or just a, an anomaly that is uh, leading to the downgrade of systems. So all of those kind of things in a written format for both the, the CISOs of the world as well as the intelligence professionals so that there's a marriage of those two things together and nothing gets missed. And you almost have to um, have a foot in both sides, right? The, the IC world and the, the non-IC world to and try to translate what can be kind of shared to maybe people with a lower classification or maybe no classification. Precisely, yeah. and so that we avoid the government speak where <laughs> people get lost in acronyms and, and say words that, for example, I just said, which aren't commonly understood, so translate that back and forth uh, to the uh, civilian sector, and then take what, what they're saying and make sure it's properly understood uh, back in through our government side. All right, so Scott, how's he doing? Let's, let's, you, know, you work for one of those ISACs, right, and put you on the spot. Uh, talk a little bit about the, what, what your ISAC is, uh, IT ISAC, first sure. of all, and then let's talk maybe a little bit about what your, the, the information all these uh, people are giving you. Sure. So the information technology ISAC brings together some of the our world's leading technology companies to share cyber threat information and to collaborate on common challenges. The, the whole idea behind the ISAC 
is to serve as a force multiplier where we kind of pull the resources of the collective membership because we can do more together collectively uh, than we can in individually. So we get, uh, in we get information from our members, uh, we get information from other ISAC partners. There's about uh, 24 different ISACs that we coordinate through the National Council of ISACs. Uh, we get information from them and also share information back out. And we participate in a couple um, information sharing programs sponsored by the Department of Homeland Security, the CISPI, um, Cyber Information Sharing and Collaboration Program, and the AIS uh, Automated Indicator Sharing Program. So through those programs, we get access to some of the indicators um, on the unclassified level that DHS and uh, DOD provide, as well as other government agencies. We get alerts from uh, the FBI uh, as, as an example as well. So the, the model is in place to facilitate this collaboration between industry and government. Um, we do have people who have clearances, but most of the uh, work that we do with DHS is on the unclassified level. One of the things that you've probably seen over the years is this Everyone has a pilot. Everyone has a program. Everybody is, is kind of sending you data. Is is the is this the th the threat data? Is the volume? You know, we can talk volume, I guess, a little bit. But maybe give me a sense of of what the differences you're seeing from the ISAC perspective over the last, you know, three, five, seven years. Sure. So it's the technology has really been a tremendous asset in in enabling more robust uh, and more timely information sharing among members. Uh, the, the advent of um, the, the advancements in threat intelligence platforms, the advent of technologies to automate the sharing, uh, the in interoperability between the tools makes it much easier to share uh, indicators uh, and to analyze them. We're not looking at uh, Excel spreadsheets that have a, you know, a thousand or, or more indicators on them. Uh, we're sharing them in a, in a format that machines can consume. and there's a lot of benefits in that, and it, you know the speed. The uh, it's almost near real time now. The n number of indicators is both a blessing and a curse. We're getting more in indicators, but now there's more more information that we need to look at, more information we need to analyze. But again, I think the the advances in with the threat intelligence platforms is making uh, is making great strides in helping helping us to do that an analysis, the, the low level analysis more quickly, which frees up resources so we can spend. Uh, uh, more time looking for advanced advanced actors. Trish, you uh, were shaking your head as Scott was talking. Uh, you just heard a lot of people talk about different pieces and parts. Maybe give me a little bit of reaction and, and uh, as Anomaly works with uh, your government customers, bring, bring this all together. Sure, so there's, there's two pieces I want to hit on there. <clears throat> so the first aspect is around what Scott talked about, um, and he mentioned a thousand indicators in a spreadsheet that's not practical. The scale of the problem is is incredible. I've been an anomaly for about four years, and when I first started here, it was two or three hundred thousand indicators. Year two, it was two or three million. Today, it's over a hundred million public indicators, meaning indicators that everybody has access to on our platform. And so, when you talk about the scale of the problem, there's a series of engineering problems that start to come into play. I would argue that the most important aspect of threat intelligence is automated integration. If you think about the no-fly list in our commercial airline uh, community, the reason why it works so well is because it's integrated with the booking system. When someone goes to book a flight, if they're on that list, they're blocked. Imagine if that wasn't integrated and someone had to go and book, they'd have to detect first that the person had tried to book that reservation. Then we'd have to have people go and run down and make sure that person doesn't show up at the reservation. The same idea applies to machine-readable intelligence where if you think about it, when an analyst gets just one product, what they have to do without the integration, automated integration piece, is they have to go manually copy and paste. They have to vet the indicators to make sure they're not false positives, they're not generating noise or blocking legitimate things. Then they have to go and copy it to 50 different devices. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And so from our perspective, I think when we think about the scale of the problem and some of the engineering challenges, these are things that we have to solve and, and something that we work closely on solving because if those aren't solved, then the value of the intelligence is severely diminished. I think the example of the no-fly list is a great one, uh, one maybe I haven't heard before, but the fact is that, right, I mean, if, if Melinda finds something and sends it to Colonel Kraft, who sends it to Brian, who sends it to Scott, I mean, what the game of telephone is, is worrisome. So uh, I know I'm simplifying here, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but so maybe talk a little bit about how, how to, th that automation piece that you've talked to a little bit, is that 
a new idea, so to speak, or is it something that just is taking some time to get going? Uh, so to a degree-ish, um, I, would, I would say ish. If you think of Sticks and Taxi, the purpose of Sticks and Taxi was to solve that problem, to make it machine-to-machine, -machine readable um, intelligence. And, and the challenges that come into play there is that I would argue Sticks is more of a menu than a standard. Now I'm borrowing that from a customer of mine who said it because I thought it was such a great analogy because what Sticks did is it standardized how we were going to transmit the data. What it didn't standardize was, was what the, the language was that we were going to use. To make it kind of simple, if you think of it as, I make a decision as a company where I want to take automated action where something is associated with a risky behavior like command and control. Uh, well, the, I'm dependent on the sticks document to say command and control. It could say C2. It could say another representation of that. And so the challenge that comes into play when you think about standards is that we, we don't really have all the, we, we have a standard that standardizes structure, but not the, the terms. So then the next piece becomes, okay, well, how do I vet, how much do I trust the source that's sharing the intelligence with me? And that could be a partner, that could be a premium commercial vendor, and not so much, I, I have a lot of people that I work with and I love and I trust at the same time. I don't know if I necessarily want to make business decisions based on that, and that's, that's the reality of what you're doing. And so I think that's the second piece that comes into play then is the analysis of that intelligence and the sharing piece, which, which standards don't solve today. So I think that we have pieces out there that are in place that enable the machine-to-machine -machine communication and the automated sharing. I think that there are gaps in those solutions that we do need to solve in order to really bring ourselves to the point where we're comfortable taking action off of threat intelligence without a human in the loop, because that's ultimately where we need to get. No analyst is going to be able to look at you know, a million indicators a day and say, yep, here's the ones I need to pay attention to and send those to my devices. So it does have to be a machine uh, conversation. All right, a lot of heads were nodding during your, your uh, talk there, so we're going to take a quick break and come back and we'll jump into why those heads were nodding. Uh, you're listening to the panel discussion, Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing in Government, sponsored by Anomaly, on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. Don't miss the Threat Intelligence Event of the Year. Detect 18 will be held at the Gaylord National Resort September 19th through 21st at the National Harbor in Maryland. Mingle with your peers, learn from threat intelligence experts, bring your knowledge, energy, new ideas, and best practices back to your agency or office. Attend the conference for free. Visit Anomaly.com. Go to the Detect 18 site and enter promo code WTOP18. That's Anomaly with an I and promo code WTOP18. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing in Government, sponsored by Anomaly on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Melinda Rogers, the Deputy CIO at the Justice Department, Colonel Paul Kraft, the Director of Operations for Joint Forces Headquarters, Department of Defense Information Networks, Brian Murphy, the Principal Deputy Undersecretary in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at the Homeland Security Department, Scott Algier, the Executive Director of the Information Technology Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and Trish Cagliostro, the Director of Federal Solution Architects for Anomaly. So at the end of the last segment, we started talking a little bit about the volume and Colonel Kraft, you kind of had a, a, an internal laugh. We all saw it. Um, and then we also started talking about six and taxing standards. So let me tag back to the volume piece. Um, one of the things about volume is just kind of Trish went through all the, the how things have just grown and grown and grown. It's even ma more massive, as, as you mentioned, um, uh, at the DOD. Maybe talk about the volume issue and the, and the data issue. Sure. So again, as we flip the, the DOD's network really to a, a extremely large sensor grid, the volume, just the volume of attacks that we see with the current number of countermeasures that are out there are in the trillions per day. And so we don't lack the data. It's really getting after the analytics and being able to broadly share that is, is, is the key to our mutual success. So that, that's, you know, I'll say part one. Part two is yesterday was uh, Patch Tuesday. So second Tuesday of the month, <laughs> uh, congratulations. You know, we know that that meant Microsoft and Adobe and a couple other uh, key players, Intel, dropped in, hey, here's the next couple dozen patches that you need to put on right now. And we know just from industry standards that um, Patch Tuesday is preceded the next day by adversary scan Wednesday, right? <laughs> so, uh, and so we know that the adversary is already actively looking and so our, our job is to look for any of those now known vulnerabilities for the systems that we have and how fast we're able to patch and also share what the adversary is focusing on. Because they may not be focused on the entire set of the patches, but we can, through a sharing capability, share what those indicators of compromise are and what we across the whole of government need to focus on. So it, it, it really is about volume, but then it's about being able to translate that volume and, and then into a, a method by which we can share it very quickly. Brian? Yeah, so I mean, I think it was a, a great point in terms about the volume and how do we manage that and what do we do? And there's a couple of ends of that. 
Um, one, one aspect I'll bring up is how do we prioritize the volume? And so good intelligence, understanding these trend lines, understanding what nation states can do, what their capabilities are. They tend to be very different, obviously, than uh, criminal actors. How do we prioritize that adversary set uh, with limited resources and tools, even in the shared environment, and look at how far advanced they are in terms of penetrating networks and build our, our kind of volume um, threat strategy baseline against that. And so that's an ever-shifting uh, situation as the more we find out about what the adversaries are up to, that helps us uh, look at that problem in that way. So as we go back to those products I initially referred to, prioritizing our products against the, the number one threat and kind of working back. I'll go back to what we said a couple times, and it does relate to the volume. This is all about the partnerships here because the new horizons, uh, they're not new, um, but I think the world is more shifting to go after our intellectual property from both the, the traditional criminal actor set as well as from the nation states. And so while the government networks are uh, certainly a target, I think we are looking more and more to being partnered aggressively with the, uh, the business side of the house because they, they share that intellectual property, or they own it, uh, that we all depend on for our lives in the U.S. and for government work and et cetera. M Wanda? Oh, Jason, I was just going to add, I think we talked about volume, we talked about uh, getting information shared at machine speed. I think the other element to this, it's a complementary but also a critical element is really the context of this information. So we're talking about contending with billions and trillions of data points, the bits and bytes. But at the end of the day, you still need that human intelligence behind it to really understand what do all these data points mean. And I think the other part of information sharing is the actual, the human collaboration. We talked about being plugged in with the intelligence community, the um, D Department of Defense, uh, the rest of the civilian agencies. How do we actually potentially get a group of the key stakeholders together and talk about these different anomalies or trends that we're seeing? I think there there's definitely an element to that, to information sharing that goes well beyond just the transmittal of the bits and bytes. And I think I think one of them makes a great point because I think Trish, you're trying to get down to that path earlier. Trish, jump in. Yeah, and and something I'd like to add to that. So, the ultimate goal is to get relevant intelligence. That you are going to take intelligence from a variety of sources, whether it's commercial partners, whether it's ISACs, whether it's us or someone else, the government, and ultimately the goal is that you want relevant intelligence. And the way that you find that relevant relevance to your organization are going to be things like the context around it. For example, if I know that something is associated with a Russian actor who always targets the government, my priority level jumps way up because I'm a government organization, it's it's likely accurate. If I know something is of a higher of a of a more serious behavior, uh, that's helpful. If I just tell you here's a bad IP address, it's like okay, well what kind of bad? Is it a scanning IP address? Is it APT? Is it command and control? All those behaviors ultimately are going to help drive your response and your action for it. So to me, when we, we think about context behind it, context is one of the most important pieces where, and that, that's where also a human comes in as well too, is to be able to add that context. I, I tell my customers all the time, the most valuable thing that, that you guys can do, we're gonna handle the machine aspects. What we want you guys to do is, to, and where does you spend your time, is ultimately in building those relationships and adding those context, that context, the indicator, because ultimately it's going to empower your analysts, the organizations that you share it with, and ultimately it gives you something that's a lot more actionable. One of the things that comes up is when we talk about the volume is how do you prioritize what's important, what's not? And maybe Scott, jump in a little bit because you're getting it from both sides, right? You're getting an industry telling you, hey, we have this problem. Yeah. And then your government saying, hey, 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 there's this problem over here too. Talk maybe a little bit about that prioritization piece. And obviously we can, that will lead us down the path also to automation. Yeah, definitely. So prioritization is really tricky, right? Um, because what's a priority to one organization may not necessarily be a priority to, 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 uh, to another organization. They could be using different tools, different technologies. So um, what we try to help our members with is is, tr is trending analysis. So if there's in within uh, the tip platform that we use, there's the ability to identify um, which indicators are being more populated within within the platform. What do we see more activity on? Which uh, how is that associated with specific malware? Uh, we're also working on vulnerability exploitation uh, reports. So you can go down rabbit holes and try and track down every indicator, or you could look at what's on your environments and what are the indicators that are exploiting uh, the software 
software or hardware that's that semi environment, and so that helps make the indicator hunting a little easier. And then I guess the third element to to, to um, jump on what Melinda was saying was certainly the human to human collaboration. Um, where there's many times where uh, we get some of the top analysts from member companies talking to other top analysts on what they're seeing, what are the trends they're seeing. Hey, even as a matter of we've seen this IP address, we're not quite sure what it is. It's come, it's, we're not seeing it in our own internal platform. Is anyone else seeing it? And yes, we've seen it, and by the way, it's, it's malicious. So getting those humans to talk to each other um, is, is really shows us a first multiplier because we can't look at everything. We can't all track all of the actors that are out there. So by dividing up who's looking at um, specific threat actors, and instead of having one company try to look at 20 of them, we can, we can have five companies look at four of them, and then, then we can do a better job do a better job at that. So one of my first jobs, uh, we created something that we wanted to share with the larger group in the Department of Defense, and we got pushback from leadership where the, the reason we didn't want to share it wasn't because of sensitivity or classification, it was because you don't have to beat the bear out of the woods, you have to beat the other campers. And that culturally has been how we've approached cyber threat information mm -hmm. sharing for a really long time. We face a two million person workforce shortage by 2020. We, we have to get past that. There's, there's classification, there's all these complications that do come in, but I think you know, Scott had made a great point. They, one of the reasons why these collaboration programs work is because it essentially acts as a force multiplier of the best and the brightest, where you're not, you're, you're allowing you to, it's allowing you to leverage resources that you wouldn't normally have. And I think that's really important when we think about information sharing is to keep in mind that the, the problem is not gonna get better even if you have all the money in the world and can hire all the people you want, it's still going to be a problem because there's not that many people to hire. And so the information and the sharing data, piece can help that. The, yeah. the levels of data, you can't hire. You can't, you exactly, can't, yeah, yeah that, that's definitely not a people problem. So, craft one thing about, we, we, I think we all made the case for automation pretty well, but it's not that easy. So maybe talk maybe some of the challenges you guys are starting to see with automation with your $24 billion network <laughs> sensor thing. Yes, so the, the challenges, and I, I say this, I kind of eat my own words, but I'll, I'll go back to it. I, you know, I said this about two years ago, we're not going to be able to people our way out of this right. challenge, uh, but it is all about people. Right, so it's having the right amount of people and the right talent in order to do this work. That's why we're looking at automated tools. So artificial intelligence is a big push. Department of Defense is looking at the Joint um, AI Center uh, as as a major initiative uh, going forward because we realize a lot of this is just being able to parse and correlate the massive amounts of data sets we have in order for humans to make better decisions about what we need to do and what we need to focus on. And so, you know, I talked a little about patch. You know, patch Tuesday equals scan Wednesday equals they're gonna weaponize by Thursday, the, the adversary, and how fast we can get after that. And so we quickly scan and look for what's attacking us and then try to broadly share what the adversary's focused on from a prioritization perspective. That's, that's just a piece, but for us, the automation and the capabilities we have have to equal speed in order for us to have the best mm -hmm. secured and defended networks, regardless if it's Department of State, Justice, or, or, or the Homeland. In, in a sense, isn't that where then six and taxi can come in because the standards and this this we're all going to get on the same path. Now the path can be very wide, but at least we're all, we're on the same path. Maybe Melinda, maybe you can talk a little bit about the the the, the, the promise or the use of sticks and taxi. How much is the Justice Department already heading down that path? So most of the security tools that we have in place today have native capabilities to ingest information in an automated fashion or export data uh, along the same veins. But I think this is one where it truly takes the community of interest, where it's a journey. I think I mentioned this to you, Jason, at the, at the uh, offline, but uh, it's a journey and we're just at the beginning. We do need to come together. We need to have the right individuals come together to start figuring out what those building blocks look like. How do we start defining those data elements so that we can start leveraging the standard and the mechanism to deliver information more effectively? I think, I hope, I'm, I'm not alone in saying we're not quite there yet, but we need to get there and it takes all of us to chip in to help us as a federal government get there. 
Scott. So I, I was just going to add that there is a lot of work in developing Stix Taxi and maturing it as a standard through through Oasis, and there's some excellent uh, ongoing work within that community to help build out that standard for automated sharing. Um, because it's version one is a great start, um, but there's def definitely ways that we can mature it, and there's a lot of uh, technical e experts are working through Oasis to to improve that uh, capability. Brian, do you see uh, from your perspective and, and how you guys are implementing the, the standards? Is is it just it's a time thing? We, we'll, we'll just over time, as we get more tools and, and, and people get used to it, or is there something else that's a bigger challenge to, to getting better information sharing, whether it's within Six and Taxi or more broader? Yeah, I, I would agree with Melinda in the, uh, with what she led with is that we're on the pathway for this. We have a long way to go, and that really goes to the conversations and getting um, at the heart of the matter with business our colleagues in the, the rest of the intelligence community, because these are business decisions, um, both for everybody that has finite resources. So as you choose your way you're gonna um, package your data, uh, if it's compliant with sticks, that's probably a business decision at some level. Um, we, we have to have conversations where we get together like this and explain the consequences, uh, you know, the, the back end if you don't choose to do something a certain way. So this common language that we all want to drive towards, as I think you also said, Jason, it needs to be wide. And I think we and the federal government have continued to adjust our, um, the way we interpret this language. And the reason I bring that up is the more we have federal and private sector engagements that we in the DHS do, which is not unique, all of our partners do the same and we come together, we understand better what business needs, how they're thinking about the future, because this common language isn't static. It can't stay with today. It has to be four to five years out or to be obsolete by the time we finish the code. Let me turn to Colonel Kraft because I'm, uh, and maybe uh, dissect what, what Brian said for a second. The, the amount of data you guys are getting, the volume that you're getting, the veracity of it, right? Absolutely. How do you deal with, on one hand, I understand that you can't just jump in with both feet because you really don't know what's at the bottom of the lake. Same time, if you right. just put one toe in, what are you missing as you kind of wade into the water, get used to the, you know, how do you find that balance of, of speed versus, uh, I guess, insurity? So, so a big part of this, when you're looking at it from a big data analytic perspective, is making sure you're asking the best questions possible to get the best data mined out in order to make the right, the right decision. And so, you know, we look at, you know, first the easiest one is like, hey, if it's a high volume issue, then it's probably this. If it's like a, a lot of different indicators of compromise, then it's probably a campaign and therefore it could be something we have to deal with and make sure we're sharing that broadly. What may look like initially a couple different, you know, IPs that are attacking us, and then we look at it in total, it's maybe 100 million IPs. So one looked like a, a, an aggressive attack, you know, by a few IPs, and then all of a sudden you look at it and it's like a botnet, you know, with 100 million IPs. So a big challenge, a, a cha still a challenge, I mean, we're definitely at the front end of, of getting this right, is making sure that we're doing the best analytics that we can in order to make informed decisions with the very diverse structured and unstructured data that we have, and then to be able to share that broadly. So it's, it's a, I'll say a multi, part challenge yeah. that we've got to get after uh, really across and, the country. And the never-ending story, I know, <laughs> that cyber never ends. Trish, let me, let me bring you into the discussion, because one of the things that, that I think is missing from this discussion is, is the urgency that I think everybody has, but from your perspective as, as maybe the vendor on the panel, um, it, one of the things that I'm hearing is, is a little bit of a hesitancy from the panel, maybe I'll pick on them a little bit to, to maybe go in a little quicker with the standards, because if you can get to standards, then understanding what data you have, I, I'm assuming here, becomes easier, and I'm no cyber expert, so so you are. So, so I'll defend the panel <laughs> a little bit. Um, one of the other challenges with sticks is there's, there's probably three major versions that are currently out there. Different products support different versions. Uh, there's another one that's coming very soon if it's not out already, uh, 2.1, and so, each of those are different, so you, you get into this compatibility problem that, that's challenging, it's not a simple thing. Uh, when you talk about information sharing, it's, it's complicated, there's a lot of policy, forget about the technical questions, there's, there's even more policy questions that come into play. And what I always tell my customers is that you can, it's very easy to get hung up in, in these really scary, larger program, programmatic questions, 
I always suggest get some quick wins. Start small. Don't try to boil the ocean on your first on your first initiative. Otherwise, you'll you'll never get there. Build some momentum. Get some quick wins going, and then I think that's ultimately how how we can get a more positive information sharing programs going. All right, you stole my last question of the panel. Sorry. All right, we'll, we'll have to think of another one. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the panel discussion, Cyber Threat, Intelligence Sharing, and Government, sponsored by Anomaly on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Anomaly are the experts in threat detection and intelligence. Organizations rely on the Anomaly Threat Platform to detect threats, understand adversaries, and respond effectively. Let the experts at Anomaly arm your security team with highly optimized threat intelligence and show you the hidden threats targeting your environment. Get started with expert insights from Anomaly. Subscribe to the weekly threat briefing and stay updated on the latest threats. Register free at anomaly.com slash WTOP. That's Anomaly with an I. Know your adversaries. Be cybersecurity enlightened. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing and Government, sponsored by Anomaly, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Melinda Rogers, Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Justice Department, Colonel Paul Kraft, the Director of Operations for Joint Forces Headquarters, Department of Defense Information Networks, Brian Murphy, the Principal Deputy Undersecretary in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis in the Homeland Security Department, Scott Algier, the Executive Director of the Information Technology Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and Trish Cagliostro, the Director of Federal Solution Architects for Anomaly. So at the end of the, the last segment, we kind of talked about the challenge of the, the automation, but also the challenge of how much data that everybody's getting and how do you parse through it. And, and Colonel Kraft brought up something, uh, the AI center that DOD is, is starting on that path. So Trish, let me start with you. From Anomaly's perspective, you must be excited about AI, machine learning, and the potential that you can get, bring to your customers. Absolutely, and it's something we baked in from, from the early days because if you don't have machine learning, one of the biggest challenges that organiza organizations have with threat intelligence and one of the biggest resistance points is the volume of false positives. My argument would be that threat intelligence should reduce noise, not create it. And so if threat intelligence is generating a bunch of noise for analysts, ultimately then it's not doing what it needs to do. So when we think about it in the context of machine learning, you know, a simple use case is that, and this happens all the time in organizations, where one of my government customers, someone will come into the threat intelligence team and they'll be screaming, you know what, this IP address, it's definitely bad, I'm positive, we need to block it immediately. And the analyst looks it up in our platform and it's, you know, 8.8.8, you know, Google's public DNS server, and there's one bad domain, but 49,999 are legitimate. So that's, that's kind of on the, the lower end of the machine learning spectrum, kind of the data hygiene aspect of it. But then you, you know, one of the conversations that came up earlier was around prioritization. So when you use machine learning, essentially what you can do is you can help derive prioritization for that where you're going to use that data point to treat, to essentially escalate priorities within the organization where if something's a 100% confident APT domain, you're likely going to treat that differently than, you know, 50% confident or a scanning IP address, for example. So, you know, in our conversation, to tie it back to our conversation earlier, machine learning is one on the data hygiene aspects, making things more actionable, and two, it's another piece of contextual data that can ultimately enable that prioritization when you see something trigger inside of your environment. Uh, Brian, is one of the challenges with machine learning, as an example, is you only know what you know, and how do you know what you don't know? So how do you kind of apply this type of technology to what you don't know, if that makes sense? Uh, it makes total sense. <laughs> I'm glad it did. Hopefully that's what we're doing every day at the department uh, and with our colleagues through uh, in the interagency as well as the our, our colleagues in the private sector. So. Um, I, th I had mentioned before that we, should, we need to be a couple years out, right? If we're looking today, that's important for the alligators closest to the boat. But what's going to really uh, have a serious impact or what's the, what the adversary is planning in the future? And we need to be ready for that today. So it's a intelligence-driven operation environment that we live in. How do we take big data? How do we get smarter from a data analytics perspective? Um, you know, one thing I think that we are uh, trying to get better at is that data analytics. It's its own field, and it needs to be integrated in a way that you have an intelligence-driven process. But where this all nests is, I'll go back to some previous comments uh, that I talked about, is w what does the adversary want? So from the criminal perspective, it's probably money. Um, from the nation state, it may be money, but it's probably the technology that mostly will rest in today's world in advanced AI um, 
information uh, that's trying to be developed. So knowing where the adversary wants to go, what is their nation plan, what does that criminal group want to do, that helps us look uh, to the next ridge line that the, the adversary is trying to achieve. Because if we stay looking in today's world, we're going we're gonna to miss the big one. Melinda, let me ask you to jump in here too, because one of the things that both I think Brian and Trisha are referring to is this idea of predictive, right? How to be more predictive. From a from your perspective as Justice Department, talk maybe a little bit about that. How, how do you become more predictive? Is Are you guys starting to look at machine learning, AI type of capabilities, or are you doing something else that can be help you kind of get to that predictive? I, I would say we're probably in the same boat with almost everybody else trying to figure our way out with this. I think one of the key elements is we, we talk about analytics quite a bit, but I think in the end it comes down to looking at this potentially in a statistical manner rather than judgmental. A lot of times the indicators and the signatures, they're judgmental. They're indicators that we've seen that are some uh, analyst thinks is associated with this bad activity. So therefore it's identified as a bad indicator or an indicator for bad activities. How do we evolve our efforts into a, to a point where we're taking this large amounts of data that we have and compare it into known goods and known bad so we actually start deriving statistical outcomes to predict the next attack. I th we're not there yet, no. and I'm not speaking, I, th I don't think, just for justice. I think as a community, cyber, we, it's, it's incredibly hot, but it's still relatively nascent if you compare to other industries that have been around for a long time. So um, there's, there's definitely a lot of opportunities that lay ahead of us. Uh, Scott, let me let me bring you back into the conversation because one of the things that when we talk about um, this AI machine learning, you still need to share that information. And when when you when you recognize that there's a problem or if there's an issue, how do you share it? And the ISAC plays that central role. So I think the Defense Department years ago, I think Dave Winogren, who used to be the Deputy CIO, kind of really uh, brought into the, the the discussion this secure information sharing. Uh, are we getting better at it? Are we there yet? Is it still too much? you know, haves and have-nots, classified and unclassified? Sure, so I, I think we're certainly getting better, um, but obviously there's, there's. I don't think we're ever going to be finished in this space. Uh, I think in terms of secure information sharing, I think we look at it as though there are two elements. Um, one is you need to sec secure technology, right? And so you need to make sure that if you're doing the automated sharing, if you're submitting information on a platform, uh, that that technology is secure both in transit and where, where the data rests. And then also, you need policies, right, on how the uh, other organizations, other people can handle that information. And they're, um, one of the ways that we address that is we have a member agreement that everybody signs, everyone agrees um, on the parameters of how the information that they get from us needs to be secured. And then there are um, penalties that can be imposed upon or the, the members who, who don't follow those, those, those policies. And there's penalties on us as an organization as well if we don't follow them. Do you get a sense, though, it's getting better, like the information sharing is getting better. I mean, where we were 10 years ago, sure, but what about last month or last year or last, in the last six months? Cause, cause it, because it, cyber is such a today, like as Melinda and I talked about the you want to be, or, or as, and as Brian talked about, you don't want to know what's happening just today, but, we're, but six months from now and, and a year from now, is information sharing giving you that kind of so we're definitely getting better. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, so. yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been with the ISX since uh, 2005. Um, from th there till today, it's night and day. Um, from from today until uh, looking back six six months ago, uh, the the indicators are becoming more timely. The collaboration, the analyst to analyst collaboration, is really uh, important because that helps give um, that helps really help us identify trends across member companies and across sectors by getting the, the my analysts together with analysts from the uh, other ISACs um, helps us to identify trends across sectors. And then working with our colleagues in the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies, getting those analysts together to compare what the federal enterprise is seeing versus what we're seeing. That helps provide some of the trending uh, and analytics that helps make, um, turns some of this big data that we're getting into smaller actionable steps. Listen, I was going to say, if I could add a, a point about the sharing of indicators, I think while there are a certain number of them are in the classified level, we at DOJ, we actually straddle all three classification levels. We do have a huge pro footprint on the unclassified side. 
the reality is the civilian agencies and DOD intelligence community, are, there are connections on the unclassified level. So to the degree that we can continue to make these indicators unclassified, shareable, we need to do more of that. I think we've evolved, we've come a long way, but we still have a, long, uh, a lot more uh, distance to go because the faster we're able to make that information shareable, the quicker we can get it out to all the agencies so that um, they don't become the weakest point of entry for the rest of the federal government. And even sometimes, I don't think DOJ has this problem, but some other agencies have the problem where you can't share classified information because they don't have anyone who's cleared who can re receive it. That's but right. You can just kind of be like, you, you should check something. Right. And look at, look at them like, you know, <laughs> check it. <laughs> I don't know if that happens anymore, but I, I know, that, know what you're that talking was a problem about, Jason. years ago. Uh, Trish, let me uh, ask you the same question, I guess, because there's been a big kind of challenge over the years as well is, is well, the government won't send you. You send us, but we got yours. Is that two-way communication starting to kind of thaw a little bit or, or at least grow wider? Yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, the automated indicator sharing program, AIS, was really helpful because it was a large program where data went in and absolutely came back out, which I think is really cool. I, I've seen the culture around sharing start to shift over the course of the last four years, and I think part of that is because you know, essentially, when I when I first started in this this industry, people would ask like, okay, how do you force people to share? With the assumption being that we had to force people to share, and I think we've gradually knocked down some big barriers there around things like um, essentially allowing people to have complete control over what's shared and with whom it's shared. As you know, we're talking about that secure information sharing, and as people grow more comfortable with that level of control and that access control, they share more data. If they don't feel like it's something secret that's happening, it's it's you know data they don't have they don't control where it goes. I think for us, the community aspect has been really important. Um, are you seeing the government more active? Are they coming to you guys more? Are you are they are they answering your calls more quickly when you're like, hey, I'm seeing this port 888 thing, you know? Yeah. Like, what's 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 the reaction you're getting from the government? Which I always uh, love to use. It's been great, honestly. We we worked so during when the AIS program was set up, we were the first company to bi-directionally integrate with AIS, meaning that we both integrated the data for our customers into our platform and also shared back data of our own to the customers or to the uh, to DHS automatically. And so I, I, that was a really cool experience for me personally because it was really a collaborative effort where we had you know people on the phone from DHS and across multiple parts of DHS all ultimately trying to make sure that we were successful because it's, it's part of the mission, right? And in my experience, I, I really, I, I honestly have seen a shift where government is more willing to work with private industry. Sometimes we'll send stuff in, things that we've identified, like Melinda was talking about earlier. Uh, I've definitely seen that, that relationship improve over the years. Because you're absolutely right, that is what used to happen. Data went in, never came back out. And that's, that doesn't benefit the community. So, Colonel Kraft, I'll go back to what you said at the very beginning, the team sport. It seems, it seems there's better teammates happening, huh? There is, absolutely. absolutely. So, absolutely. And, and, <laughs> I you were going to say that, by Yeah, the way. so, and, and, and I think just a big part of that is we realize the, the amount of interconnectivity we do have in this, in this domain. That n no, no department, nothing within the whole of government is, is an island. Um, and the more we're able to work together and share and I'll say knock down some of those maybe, you know, cultural barriers uh, is really what it is. It's not necessarily a technical, I mean, yes, it's technical, uh, technical challenge, but it's also a cultural challenge to be able to, to rapidly share. And so it's one thing to set it up right uh, and, and I'll say speak the same language. We've got some machine language that we can speak in to be able to share and then to be able to do that to really um, put the whole of government capability uh, together. This has been a great conversation. Unfortunately, though, we're, we are almost out of time. So, Melinda, you let off the conversation, so I'm going to start with you to, to, to close it out. When you think about information sharing, cyber threat intelligence, where are we heading? You know, if we have this conversation again a year from now, what, what are some of the either A, you know, where do you see in the future, or B, what are some of the obstacles that still maybe need to be uh, addressed? Um, I think quality, context, and speed. Those would be the three things we should continue to focus on. And ultimately, I would say it takes a commitment, not just from private industry, but also from the federal agencies to devote the resources to continue to evolve the sticks and the taxis of the world, right? So we need, to, we need to set those standards, we need to set the mechanism, but we need to not just focus on that after we have an attack or after we had an incident, but we need to make sure we actually lay that path ahead. Uh, Colonel Kraft, from a DOD perspective? So you all see DOD up front is we're about speed, the, the speed at which we can respond to any adversary uh, from uh, you know, protecting the homeland to protecting the Department of Defense, defending the nation. 
And so I'll say speed is at the form foremost, but with that comes a lot of requirements of the right language, the right speed, asking the right questions, having right, the right analytics in place. Uh, and a lot of that has to be done uh, via machine learning and, and um, artificial intelligence with having the, a, a great talent pool there to be able to take the information and make decisions rapidly. The human, you guys are building up that great talent pool, so uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, Brian Murphy from DHS. So I'm just glad we were called cool by Trish. Um, <laughs> no one else caught that, but I did. Um, so thank you. That's I the think biggest takeaway. I, I think where we want to be is a flat intelligence sharing organization from not necessarily a machine learning side, uh, that's well addressed by my colleagues, but from a prioritization. What do we think the adversary wants to obtain from a governmental side and how is it integrated with what business is trying to protect? Because in today's world, we rely on each other, as the Colonel said, um, completely so that the business and the government, how we get our um, technological advantage in place and we keep it, it's essential that we have that same intelligence baseline and, and what the adversaries are looking for. And Scott, from your perspective, what we've heard today, where, where are we going next? Sure. So I think there are th three three elements. One is defining the term cyber threat intelligence. I think um, it's a term that's used a lot. Uh, I think we generally know what we mean, but I think defining def defining what it means will help us identify um, and mature that 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 phrase into a into its own capability. Um, joint analysis, getting humans to talk to each other and uh, collaborate more. Uh, we're doing a lot of good work, but there's still a lot of room for improvement on that. And I think the third element is evolving the business case for cyber th threat information sharing, uh, helping organizations understand the value of cyber, uh, of sharing the information that they generally are um, instinctually want to keep a close hold on. And Trisha, you get, to la you get the last word. Sure. So I, I think it's conversations like this is one of the most important things where, to me, a lot of the technology exists to make this, this possible. Uh, conversations like this excite me because it shows that there there is interest from the government side to really talk about this and solve some of the cultural barriers. I think the other piece that Scott kind of hit on as well is that we have to find a way to answer the question of the ROI of information sharing. To receive the data is extremely straightforward. Yep, I get more visibility, situational awareness, that's, that makes sense. But what value do I really get from sharing back, right? And so I think that's one of the most important pieces because when we look at cybersecurity, it's it's another investment. It takes time. It's not free to share the information. And we have to do better as industry and as government in articulating why and, and making that business case of why people need to share threat intelligence. Excellent. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. I'm sure we could talk a lot longer. You've been listening to the panel discussion, Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing in Government, sponsored by Anomaly, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. Let me thank my guests for today. Melinda Rogers, the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Justice Department. Colonel Paul Kraft, the Director of Operations for Joint Forces Headquarters, Department of Defense Information Networks. Brian Murphy, Principal Deputy Undersecretary in the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at the Homeland Security Department. Scott Algier, the Executive Director of the Information Technology, Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And Trish Cagliostro, the Director of Federal Solution Architects for Anomaly. Thank you all so much for taking your time today. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Anomaly Intelligence. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion sponsored by Anomaly on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Anomaly Intelligence.